Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, I have a very special guest today. Um, he is somebody that I've spoken to before, like a while ago. Uh, the Daryl did a uh, podcast in which he and I talked about Black Asian relations. I guess is the sort of tame way to put it. I don't know. Like I hate when people talk about like X and X relations, but I don't actually know a better way. <laughs> Daryl, do you know? Do you know a better term for it? It was kind of like a transracial summit. <laughs> Trans. Okay, that's better. Um, his name is Daryl Owens. He is a housing and transit and policing activist here in the city of Berkeley, which is you know, where I also am. And I would say that he's a bit of an urbanist celebrity. You probably have seen his tweets if you listen to the show. And um, yeah, you know, one of the few feeds I would say that is both entertaining and informative, right? It's usually one of the two. It's either something is informative, it's like some historian that posts these very long somewhat tedious threads or it's somebody who's funny but you know you've managed to do both so uh congratulations on that how are you doing i'm doing great you know the whole thing about the twitter backstory is like it it really wasn't supposed to be like i guess no one comes onto twitter or any kind of platform and thinks they're going to turn into like some celeb like i made a twitter account when i was a community college student and i was just bored and i was just annoyed with like how bad um bart was and so on, <laughs> on the trip i would just complain like i would you can go talk to the Bart social media people about this. I was like a five follower account. I would just like complain and harass the like Bart social media people. Um, and then over time, uh, some people were like, wow, you're like a transportation expert. I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that Bart had such a robust social media presence, but I do have a friend who lives in this area who uh, I think that's his job. You know, his job is to sort of do a lot of, Bart's uh, comms and social media stuff. Oh, is uh, his name Lee? Uh, his last name is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know him. He's he's hilarious as hell. Yeah, he's yeah, good. yeah. He's a good guy. Um, actually, actually, I like him quite a bit. So, um, all right. So, what we're going to talk about today is not the transracial summit, although we can get into that as well. But we're going to be talking about your general, you know, area of expertise. I would say, but also something that is, uh, and we're going to talk about about it both locally and nationally. And so the background here is that the city of Berkeley passed a uh, commitment. What was the actual word behind it, Daryl? It was like a commitment or was it a, a resolution? A resolution, yeah, it's a resolution. Right. A resolution to end single family housing in the city of Berkeley. Zoning. I'm sorry. Oh, zoning. Yes, yes. So not housing. That would be, yeah. that would be much more invasive. <laughs> it would be an actual, it might be an actual like a uh, violation of like the third amendment, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the, that's the scary communist takeover right there. We're, we're not, we're not doing that. Yeah. Like we're going to go, we're going to partition your house into four, into four units and you're going to have to house soldiers here. You know? yeah, that's, like, that, that's what, that's what some people think. I, so we, we have to be clear about that. It's zoning. Zoning, zoning. In the city of Berkeley, this got a lot of national attention. Uh, I think that uh, was Farhad Manji wrote a piece in the New York times about it, uh, yep. the, um, about how Berkeley should be, a model for the rest of the country. And, um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of national attention around this issue. And, you know, the thing that was always interesting to me about this as a recent move, uh, recent resident of Berkeley um, is, you know, just how much is actually specific to Berkeley and how much should be seen as a model for the rest of the country. Um, and so, yeah, why don't you just give us a little background on, you know, because I know that you had some, you know, you had some influence on the passing of this bill on the crafting of this bill. Just give us a little bit of background on it. Yeah. So 
I grew up in Berkeley. Um, I grew up in Oakland too. And I've lived in a variety of housing in Berkeley, single family homes, apartment complexes. Uh, I grew up in a sort of duplex in um, East Oakland. So I grew up with like no idea of the differences between these houses. Back up a little bit from the mic. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, I grew up in East Oakland in a duplex. I grew up in West Berkeley with a uh, big old apartment complex. And I grew up in Central Berkeley, Central West Berkeley with a uh, single family home. I didn't know the difference between any of these kinds of houses meaningfully, and I really didn't care. Uh, they provided sort of a diversity of housing options for a lot of residents. And it was always just sort of nice to live in these integrated communities where you'd have a lot of different cultures and peoples. I, you know, I grew up with my neighbors speaking like five different languages on the block. Um, you know, the, a lot of them were Asian immigrants, uh, uh, mostly Indian. Uh, it was historically a black community. And it was really great. And growing up in Berkeley, you're also, everyone knows this. If you're a black kid in Berkeley, you knew this, that the eastern side of the city is like the segregated side of the city right. um, and the northern side too. Everyone knows this. Your, your parents teach you it. Uh, you get told this in school and it explains the sort of socioeconomic barriers. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why this is the case. But one of the prominent reasons is chiefly because there's just no multifamily housing um, east of a particular street and north of a particular street. Right, that that one- street is like moving, right? So like, you know, just to give just to give the listeners a little bit of a like, it's not like the city is cut and was cut in half, right? Like what, what was it divi- when you were growing up? What was the dividing line? Like, cause oh, you know, you I, I know like, that it, gentrification now, right? Cause it used to be like telegraph, right? Like, or at some point it was like everything west of telegraph is, you know, or east of telegraph and north of let's say campus is like, is uh, wealthy white people. What, what was it when you were growing up and what is it now? Well, historically the, the red line was Martin Luther King Jr. Way. Okay. Um, it used to be called Grove. They had to rename. Well, they didn't have to. They chose to rename it. Um, I would say that when I was growing up, it was basically where it was originally. I I would say more so Sacramento Street was probably right. the real red line at that point. Um, because there's sort of a gap between Sacramento and Shattuck, which is sort of the central part of Berkeley. That had already been gentrifying pretty heavily. I mean, a lot of Berkeley had been gentrified by 1980. Um, so you know the. the this isn't a new thing at all. When By the time I was finished growing, it was quite clear that the black community was more or less relegated to just, uh, I would say, west of San Pablo Avenue and south of maybe Dwight. And that was it. Yeah. Right, so the, the, the red line has shrunk considerably despite right. the multifamily housing. Um, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You're, you're talking about, you know, the sort of impetus behind this bill. Well, no. So, I mean, that's kind of an important thing is that like, um, a lot of where the single family zoning in Berkeley is. So a lot of researchers have been doing, have been talking about single family zoning. And this has sort of been the big topic about housing that's come out of the 2010s. By no stretch of the imagination, is it new? Um, exclusionary zoning has been litigated in courts. Um, it's been talked about since it was first created. So in Berkeley, Unbelievably, this kind of comes as a shock to a lot of people. Single family zoning, which of course, just to define our terms, mandates that only one home for one family can be built on a lot in an area, uh, is one of the most prominent forms of zoning codes in the United States. It's a very American only thing. It might be in Canada too, but really cities outside of the US don't mandate that only one family can live in one house um, or there can only be one house on a lot. But 
Uh, regardless, it's an American-only thing, and it came from Berkeley, California in 1916. Uh, we beat out New York and Los Angeles. And what the law at the time was designed to do was initially designed to stop um, a black dance hall and a white affluent area. And it gradually became a anti-renter, anti-tenant, and anti-black and Asian law that more or less said, because we know black people and Asian immigrants um, and renters tend to live in multifamily housing, we're going to prohibit that kind of housing in these all-white neighborhoods. Um, so that will uh, discourage the likelihood of the property values going down and these groups infiltrating our communities. And this became sort of a model zoning code that has now taken over the nation as sort of the suburban zoning code where you only have, it's a, it's, it's just anti-apartment, it's anti-tenant. And so Berkeley had always long known about this, but it had never really been popular to talk about it, Despite the fact that the city was always just like left-wing enclave, being supportive of housing and, and density and urbanism was always kind of taboo. There were a lot of people who were famous for doing it in Berkeley historically, like the woman who helped desegregate Berkeley schools, which Berkeley was one of the first schools in the United States, if not the first, um, uh, among major cities to desegregate its public schools. She also tried to eliminate single family zoning in the 70s and totally failed. That just, she, she says in hindsight, <laughs> that was never going to happen. Um, it was probably easier to desegregate the schools than to eliminate single family zoning. Um, but I mean, for the most part, the tide was that people didn't want apartments in their communities. It was white flight happening and people wanted, you know, to preserve their property values. And so it actually became sort of a liberal lefty thing to block housing and do all this down zoning, which um, mandated so little housing got built. So, you know, fast forward about 50 years later, Berkeley has undergone intensive gentrification. The black population has uh, literally started dropping drastically uh, shortly after the down zonings occurred, just like a couple years after, and has never really stopped. And affordability is virtually non-existent. In order to buy a house in Berkeley, you have to compete with like 12 other people, $20,000 all cash offer down payments. Uh, median sale uh, home prices now are like $1.4 million. It's basically eclipsed San Francisco for the first time in history, according to Zillow. It's gotten really bad. And at this point, people are like, okay, maybe we should reevaluate allowing housing again so that people can live in our community, so that our service workers can be in our community, so that people aren't commuting in from miles away. Most of my family's lived in Berkeley for four generations. A lot of them have left in part because they cannot afford to live here anymore. And a lot of the service workers, the public workers, my family was from the public sector, all of which um, are now commuting in from houses an hour away. And right. it's, 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 it's devastating to our climate first and foremost, because there's like no transportation options and it's not efficient to run transportation out that far. And so everyone's commuting in their cars. And the second problem is it just creates a kind of crappier city that's much more white and much more posturing, right? You know, you know, this living in Berkeley, there's probably far more Black Lives Matter signs than there are black people. And it's just kind of annoying and it doesn't really make for a cohesive city. So uh, for this reason, we decided to take on, among many things, we proposed a lot of housing reforms. We proposed social housing, which would be sort of public sector subsidized housing. We proposed um, a density bonus for 100% low-income housing. Uh, but we also proposed that we eliminate the single-family zoning ordinances so that you can turn one home into multiple homes, which was allowed in Berkeley up until like 1973. Right. Well, like, I mean, what what do you think changed? Because that's something that was interesting to me too, because my sense of Berkeley before moving here was that it was going to be a lot of people who are very nimby-ish, not, you know, 
across the board, not just about this one issue, but, you know, a wealthy population of people who had liberal values, but perhaps didn't, you know, were not, weren't willing to sacrifice things to, uh, to achieve them. And, you know, I don't think that anything that, you know, not to insult my neighbors or whatever, like, I don't think much that's, you know, there's not much that, that since getting here that's disabused me of that, of that idea. Um, and as you said, now, you know, now that I've looked into it so much, there's this long history of this type of, of just housing, you know, anti-density housing activism. I don't know if that's even a term, but, you know, like people really not wanting to have fourplexes, eightplexes, whatever built in their communities. What, what do you attribute the change in this to? Because, you know, at least, you know, we, we, we should be very clear and say, like, basically what passed is not really anything that is a law or anything like that. It's a resolution that they're going to do this, right? Like, um, but it did pass, you know, and I think that it passed, I think all seven or eight, however many city council members voted for Unanimously, it, right? nine. Unanimously, nine. And, um, and I don't know, just talking to people in the community and, you know, talking to my neighbors and, uh, I will just, you know, my neighbors are people, I live in one of the, you know, I'll just say I live in a single family zoned neighborhood. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. Like, what, what do you attribute this sort of change in, in attitude towards? I, first of all, the housing crisis has gotten so bad now. The traditional housing denialism, preservationism, nimbyism, that's kind of getting, they, they haven't offered any real solutions. They basically took over the city, passed a bunch of down zoning ordinances, and everything started. They, they were too successful, right? <laughs> their, their, whole, their whole goal was to preserve the city so that it would be a nice place to live, that it wouldn't be besieged by apartment complexes and, 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 and all these, these sort of what was perceived as negative attributes. And some of them were. I mean, you, look, you can see the apartments from the 50s and the 60s in Berkeley. They're not exactly the nicest looking buildings. Um, and again, the problem back then was like white people fleeing for the suburbs. You know, people were trying to stop their cities from turning into Detroit. I get it. Like, fine. But we're not dealing with that anymore. Now we're dealing with like urbanization. We're dealing with immigration and we're dealing with population growth. Many of these people who live in these single family homes who may have traditionally been NIMBY are now finding that their kids can't even live in these houses anymore, that they can't even move back into their communities, that their kids are living with them forever because they can't find housing in their own neighborhoods or in their own city where they grew up. And so a lot of people are like, you know, and then, and then people are buying houses and they're, they're, they're bringing in their whole family living in overcrowded conditions. They have to build an ADU in the backyard for their in-laws. And I think it was, it was only really like 10 years ago that the NIMBY movement was so still pretty dominant in Berkeley. Um, they successfully stopped downtown housing, despite the fact that voters had voted for it. I think there's this implication that uh, Berkeley voters are super NIMBY. They're not. They just... Uh, they voted for housing in downtown. They voted for density and it's the, the cabal that usually opposes all housing successfully blocked it anyhow. But I think that the regional housing crisis where the Bay area was adding like an insane number of jobs relative to housing. Um, I believe it was an average of six jobs for every one new home. And then you go to the West Bay, it's, it's much higher. Uh, I think that that combined with the fact that Berkeley had really built so little housing over the last 50 years and the housing crisis had been so bad that a lot of young people were getting priced out and were living in overcrowded conditions and were getting pissed that like 
they're having to deal with this, that a lot of older folks can't expand their families and their homes, that a lot of older folks are what we call house rich, but cash poor, um, that, that like essentially selling their homes mean they're going to have to abandon their communities because even at the high home prices, they probably can't afford to compete with like 12 other people for a new home in their own cities. The fact that like seniors can't find any accessible housing in Berkeley because all of it's built like 50, 60, 70, 80, upwards of 100 years ago. Um, so none of it's ADA accessible for the disabled. The fact that all these problems were kind of hitting each other made people go, okay, you know what, it's time to say yes to housing. And so one of the reasons, of course, you know, we won an election against an incumbent and um, a local West Berkeley native, much like myself, a a black man named Terry Taplin was elected. So that tipped the council in favor of housing when it was already gradually becoming in favor of housing with pro-housing candidates winning um, in the UC Berkeley district and uh, a a, a Northwest Berkeley uh, residential district. And then the mayor did sort of a he and he he openly states this he did a a, a, a side switch right he like flipped sides um, he basically started out as a and this is Jesse Aragine he started out as a NIMBY like by all definitions he opposed right. bus lanes um, he he very successfully <laughs> uh, killed one of our bus rapid transit projects um, he fought like some of our downtown housing projects he would he virtually never voted yes for a downtown housing project. Uh, He strongly believed we did not need to build more housing unless it was only subsidized and et cetera, et cetera. And I think because he himself lives in a multifamily um, home that he himself has been, has seen the housing crisis just up close and personal um, that he's like, you know what? I was wrong about this. And so over the last three years, he, he really, he did it kind of slow. He was like, okay, I'll support this downtown project, but whatever. Um, and now he's like a full blown, like Yimby. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of the, the switch or, you know, the part that I'm interested in is that, you know, like these, this proposal obviously came after, uh, you know, the uprisings last summer. And, you know, we saw it here in Berkeley, every, Every yard has a Black Lives Matter sign out front of it. Uprising, but well, you know, in Minnesota, yeah. other places. But uh, what do you think is like? Do you think that you the framing of this was interesting to me because it wasn't like uh, it was a frame. The way that it was framed is that single family zoning is has a racist past, right? And that we should we should sort of eliminate that racist past and that. When I would see people talking about it, or I would, you know, I don't know why, but I, you know, I guess it was a pandemic and I ended up <laughs> like sitting in on a lot of those Zoom city council meetings where this was being discussed. Like it was, it was, it was framed that sort of way. It wasn't framed in, as a housing issue, like this is going to be a solution. It was framed as like, we should get rid of this racist past thing. Was that like a conscious decision? Like why, why was that decision made? So during, and to be clear, like, because almost all of UC Berkeley went home, there was like no protests in Berkeley. It was, it was actually right. really revealing. Like, it, it, and that actually shows how bad the gentrification has gotten. Um, that many of the like working class communities that traditionally would have been very affected by police brutality, like, don't live in Berkeley anymore. They were priced right, out to right. other cities. So you basically had a bunch of like wealthy white people, um, you know, putting Black Lives Matter signs up and sort of calling right. it a day. Uh, but. What did happen, it was very interesting, was, and, we, and a, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of support from the young was a march of Berkeley High students that went up to these uh, northern hills of northern Berkeley Hills and 
did a big rally talking about redlining. It was called pay your dues. And it was pretty remarkable. It was like, a, it was like one of the only protests we had in Berkeley where a bunch of mostly black and brown Berkeley high students um, went from the so- Southwest quadrant of the city and went up to the Hills and, and basically said, look, this is the sort of redlining um, that has destroyed our community while at the same time you live here, you know, ritzy ritz. And a lot of black students were like, I never even been this high up in the hills before. These street names are completely unfamiliar to me. I know how that feels because as some, a black person who does live in uh, the wealthy part of Berkeley, um, coming from the Western part, like it's like a completely different city. And it, 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 you already saw energy around the fact that many of the segregation issues in Berkeley had never been resolved. And the most prominent one being zoning still continues to not be resolved. So you had a flurry of information. Much of this research that came from many universities had already been open and known, but just people didn't really care. But over the last couple of years, you saw a lot more research showing where there's single family zoning, there's more white people. Where there's single family zoning, housing is more expensive. All these things tend to correlate. And it became quite clear that single family zoning was a primary tool, then later called exclusionary zoning. Um, to make housing very expensive. Of course, the most prominent research was probably from the Other Othering and Belonging Institute, um, Other and Belonging Institute, where they basically showed that like 86% of the Bay Area was single family zoned. And these areas very strongly correlate with a increase in white residents and a decrease in um, people of color. And so the reason why I think that the, 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 um, I forget what it was called to. What, what do you call these things? Memorandums, whatever. The reason why that item, which first of all is a, is an important thing because to be clear in Berkeley, you get nothing done unless you put a time limit on it. <laughs> so right. what that item said was, is in two years, we will devise a new zoning code to eliminate single family zoning. They would never just do it at a council meeting like that, but essentially putting a tombstone on single family zoning saying, Hey, your time's up in two years. That was effectively eliminating it. Now what replaces it? We don't know. Um, hopefully it's going to be four family, uh, four unit housing. But well, I, I, the, the reason why I'm asking is just that it's because like, you know, there's this debate going on on the left that I'm sure that you're aware of about whether or not framing things in terms of racial justice when they're, you know, uh, is actually helpful or harmful to things like this passing, right? Which uh, housing is not something that only affects one group of people. And it, you know, it's something that obviously is the lifeblood of the city and it certainly affects everybody. Um, but it seemed here in Berkeley that it did help, you know, that it did oh, it help a lot. convince yeah. people. And, you know, that's what, that's one of those things where I just wonder, and we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, a little bit later, but, you know, is it a Berkeley specific thing where if you frame these things in terms of racial justice, that more people here in Berkeley specifically might get it, but maybe nationwide that that won't be as convincing. Like just, I actually don't have, I have no like predisposed answer to, to this question. I just, I don't know either. I, I really don't know. I think it depends on your community. Berkeley is a liberal community. It's a left-wing community that has long prided itself on its past and left-wing activism. So when you point out that the zoning map literally looks like the old redlining maps, um, it really sort of, it, it really says something to people. We could have just made it an affordability conversation and effectively that's what it's now going to become. Because to be right. clear, there's two items, right? There's the, there's the eliminating single family zoning in two years um, requirement item, which is already passed. And that was really the racial justice item. That was, yeah. we're getting rid of this bad ordinance. And then now we're talking about the new item, which is the proposal to 
zone at a minimum for family housing citywide. Mm-hmm. And that is really where more so the affordability and the housing economics framing comes in as opposed to the racial justice framing um, for a lot of people. I did notice, though, that despite the fact that Berkeley has a very progressive um, history, talking about the racial impacts of zoning was very sensitive for a lot of residents. Really? Um, a, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of them were... Uh, a lot of the people who traditionally would absolutely oppose upzoning got very offended at the notion that they were racist. They got very, even though we said they weren't racist like 15 times, they still <laughs> imagine they said it. Um, yeah, that they, never they, works. They, yeah, I'm not they, saying yeah. you're racist. Never, it's never worked. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the point is like they didn't make the code, but like ultimately, yeah, it has a racial right. impact, and they were so sensitive about that. Um, and 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 you could see that they 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 really felt like 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 something had changed, and that they that 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 they had been very just offended by the notion that we were linking single family zoning with racism even though we had all these years ago published texts explaining that Berkeley's ordinance was about racism right um it like literally it was like the 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 realtor board at the time was like uh thank you uh developer for inventing single family zoning uh this will keep out the negroes and asiatics like this right, right here like what are you talking about and so um yeah they didn't like it but ultimately I think it resonated with most of the city and frankly, their insecurity about it kind of revealed that it probably needed to go. Now, will that work for all communities? I don't know. Um, And Oakland's trying it, but Oakland isn't really framing it too much in racial justice. I've noticed they've been framing it mostly in terms of um, economics that it's, it's just about housing affordability. Uh, I think Berkeley's a little different because it's such a smaller community and it's, it was always very clearly segregated, whereas Oakland's much bigger and the single family zoning, though mostly in white communities, isn't exclusively. So yeah, Oakland's having an interesting conversation about it. It didn't work. It doesn't appear to have worked. I don't know how it's working out in San Francisco. Um, they proposed an idea and then it immediately got shot down because San Francisco, the thing about Berkeley is doing the zoning thing in Berkeley was was actually pretty smart because it really does kind of inspire the rest of the country. Like Berkeley, despite being a very tiny town, is a is a big culture cultural city, right? And so right. what happens here, you're going to probably read about by some, you know, Cal- in California today in the New York Times, um, or if this, or, if this or had, you'll it, see it on Fox News, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. or yeah. Fox News, right? right. Um, you, you're not going to probably no one's going to care if like uh, what like uh, Stockton had eliminated single family zoning. Would that have mattered? Not that much. So, yeah, it was it was a big deal to do it in Berkeley. Should you do it on race? I'm not always sure. I've actually made this very clear, and I told a Vox reporter this. Look, at the end of the day, you really want to pitch single family zoning on personal terms, right? This is about letting multi multifamily households come into our community and give us space, give our children a place to live, give um, immigrants that have extended families beyond the nuclear model a place to live. It, ultimately, that's it. It's not about. I mean, it's not about calling you racist. It's not saying that you're uh, the Ku Klux Klan or something. It's just about a, a sensible, decent way to respect neighborhood character and modestly increase housing density. This isn't skyscrapers. This is four family housing. And so I feel like you always got to pitch it in personal terms. But it's it really is like context dependent. Right. I, that I, that's generally how I feel. I mean, Minneapolis obviously had a different, uh, you know approach than Berkeley and even Oakland having a different approach than, you know, Oakland, which is obviously an adjoining town having different, uh, well, Minneapolis was pretty, I I felt like Minneapolis really hit it on a racial term, didn't they? 
Did they? Um, like they in the like same way that Berkeley did? Do you think? Maybe not in the same way, but I remember every single time I read about the Minneapolis, which was the first city to do it in the United States, I right. believe. First um, major city, yes. For yeah, sure. first yeah. major city. Um, I feel like every time I read about it in, in, in newspapers, it was always, well, single family zoning is this like tool that all the white neighborhoods have. Um, and so it was about unlocking access to opportunity. Oh, maybe. As, like but that is, but that's slightly different, I think, than the racist history of it, which is the way that Berkeley t- seemed to frame oh, it. Oh, right. right. But right. yeah, but that only works in, unless you can like show that your city did it for racial histories. The fact that Berkeley was the first city to do it was pretty effective, like in terms of demonstrating that and, 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 and really explaining this on racial terms because we were the first city to we're, we're gonna just let that pass like i'm not gonna just let that sit there I'm gonna- so like mostly as like a symbolic thing right like like let's just talk about the you know the sort of pragmatic part and you know this is where like i i, I want to sort of run the the ideas through through sort of what what some of the opponents say right um yeah and uh i i don't think anyone we'll disagree that there's a crisis right now. I mean, maybe some people do, but you know, in California generally, uh, this is from East Bay for everybody, which I think you, you've done some work for, right. Or that you're affiliated with. I was the former co-executive. Yeah. Right. Um, there is a California has a shortage of three and a half million homes, uh, one and a half low income homes. Wages are too low in California to, you know, for the housing prices. I don't think anyone would disagree with that as well. Uh, Oh, you think that the, the, the wages are high enough to afford living in California right now? Oh, oh, relative to the housing costs, no. Right, right, right. I think That's that what the I'm problem saying. is a wage problem. In most of the country, we have a wage problem. Right. In, in, in coastal California, it's a housing problem. Right, 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 right. Uh, that, that within those specific areas that basically no one can, I mean, no one can afford to live here is, is what people are saying, except the super wealthy. Um, the plan is to build 250,000 units per year. Is that right? Like that would be, that would be the idea. And that, that would, no, that would be necessary. Yeah. Right. And nobody is building enough affordable housing right now, whether for profit, nonprofit, anything. Right. Um, and so like the idea is like, okay, well, what can we do outside of, uh, eliminating, you know, like where, where does eliminating single family zoning how does it function into that? Like, how does it, how does it sort of lead to that? Because I think that that's something that people assume, but I don't know. Like, I think that, that it needs to be explained in some ways as well. Right. Like, it's not just that if you say, okay, um, now in Cragmont area or in the Berkeley Hills, you can build a fourplex instead of a house, you know, that's fine. Right. But if nobody does that, then there's no additional housing. So like how, how, like, how does this sort of fit? Is this step one in a, in a multi-step process or like, or like what, what happens after this? So are you asking like, what's the practicality of actually like once the ordinance passes, like how does this help? Um, To be honest with you, like, do I think that this is going to like radically change the affordability game? I think marginally it will in the same way ADUs did, right? When ADUs right. got legalized, um, you saw a huge flurry, especially in Los Angeles, of of homeowners building these second homes in their backyard uh, to house their like extended families or to get a little extra rental income. Um, so like, yeah, it's I think it'll actually absolutely help on the margins. But the financing is probably a little actually not a little, it's probably pretty difficult. And the thing is like the problems with housing construction doesn't just stop at the zoning ordinance. Um, The problems also deal with the construction and the permitting. So if it takes two years 
so so here's an interesting thing. Um, the initial fourplex proposal for family housing. We got to stop saying plex. We got to say housing and family. Um, the initial proposal, why? What's it? What's the difference? Is there some difference? Oh, it's a no. There's not a difference. It's a difference in like culture. So what I notice about the housing debate is whenever you say duplex or fourplex, or you say t- 10 unit building or 18 unit building, the implication subtly is that these are not real homes. These are apartments and they're not real homes. Got it. Got when it, you refer yeah. to a single family home, it's a single family home. It's not a oneplex. It's not a one unit. It's a single family home. And so the implication there in our culture, and I think this is part of the reason why we're so antagonistic towards multifamily housing, is this implicit idea that multifamily housing is some kind of slummy, non-real housing that's not really for families, it's for tech workers and people right, who right, live right, in studios. Right. No, it's like real housing. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's why I want to say for, that's why I'm trying to indoctrinate everybody listening by saying for family housing. That means- No four more fourplex. Okay. Right. Uh, we can we can either say four family housing or we can say one plex for single family homes. We've got one. Um, <laughs> but uh, that would actually be quite funny. Like, um, yeah, I, would you like to come over to my one plex? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's what we got to do. But um, you know, got so, an amazing one plex up in the hills. It's got a great views. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically, I think that the financing is really difficult. If you're going to tell somebody that they're a single family homeowner, they want to subdivide their mansion. So let's let's take Elmwood, right? Land of $2 million houses, huge mansions, extremely oversized. Let's say that like a homeowner who's a senior there is really old and wants to collect some rental income and decides to subdivide their house into a, a, a two-family home or a three-family home. Number one labor costs are going to be pretty high off the back. So we don't have enough construction workers. So wait, hold on. What are these people doing? God, I hate living on a major street. It's so (laughs) annoying. These people are like, so, okay. Um, The first problem is that there's not enough construction workers in the region to build the housing we need. California needs to basically double its housing production just to keep pace with population growth. So we don't have enough construction workers for that. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that if you have to spend two years arguing with your neighbors before you get your permit, most people aren't going to do it. Right. And this right. is and this is a problem with the ADU stuff too. It's one of the reasons why state legisla- the state legislator has been so focused on trying to improve permitting time. And one of the reasons... Sadly, Berkeley was also pretty famous for making uh, extremely long permitting times popular. But the idea that your neighbors should have like input on what kind of housing you decide to build or what developer you sell your homes to ultimately ruins the financing. We have a streamlining law in California called Senate Bill 35, which, and this gets really complicated, but if you live in California, you should know this. Um, We have something called the Regional RENA. I say these I say these acronyms so much I don't even remember. What it's it okay. Just call it Raina. Just tell okay. Us what we it we is. have these yeah. regional needs housing allocation requirements where basically the state says, okay, this is how much housing a city needs to build. And for the longest time, no one ever cared what the state said. Like, I don't care. So then, recently, there was a law passed that basically gave um, permit applicants for new housing. If you did not satisfy your RENA targets within the two-year progress report, because these are allocated by decade, within the two-year progress report, you get like ministerial approval, meaning that an average permit time, which generally goes for about two years, 
now goes to 90 days. You go to the planning department, you tell them, this is my project. It's environmentally sound. I'm out. Neighbor objections. None of that stuff matters. You got your permit. Go build. So the problem is, is that, I mean, that's not law. That only happens if a city is behind on their targets, which they probably will be because cities, unfortunately, are run by a lot of anti-housing people. But if you don't have that streamlining law in effect, you got to like argue with your neighbors for two years to build a single home or two extra homes on your property. I know homeowners who live by me who tried to build an ADU and the neighbors fought that to hell. Right. Um, and so like no one's going to do it. The financing's not because you got to go to the bank and like, like try yeah, to argue yeah, to for a, a construction loan, loan. Yeah, and all this refinance, stuff. Yeah. And then your neighbors don't care. They're out here trying to ruin your finances. So the project falls through. Berkeley's <laughs> notorious for this, by the way. Right, right, um, right. The, the, if they can't kill your project at the permitting stage, what they'll do is they'll try to delay it as much as possible. So that the <laughs> financing falls through. They did that right, for two right. of our biggest housing projects downtown. They do it all the time. Um, but it's a real problem. So like there's no, the, the financing's not there. The construction costs are too high and the permitting time is too long. So I don't think a lot, I think a lot of people will choose to do it relative to the existing number of people doing it. But I mean, I currently live in a five unit zoned area and there's only one project happening by me. And this is like the first project in decades. So, yeah, it, well, so like, what, what's the, like, how, how does this actually change? Like, will this actually change the you know, composition of Berkeley? Like it's, in terms it's supposed of- to, the whole concept of fourplex zoning is it's supposed to be a compromise from the get go. Right. The whole point was that, yeah, the solution to the housing crisis is probably massive densification. We can understand why homeowners probably don't want to see high rises erected, not even high rises, mid rises erected in their backyard. So let's compromise. You can do four family housing instead of like 14 or 40. Okay. Right. It's supposed to be a compromise, but they are they are take all, no concede. This is what the, this is what a lot of the NIMBYs have been pushing for the longest time. Like, we want contextual density. Then we propose it, and now they're like, "Oh wait, I don't know about that." Um, but I mean, to be honest with you, is this the backbone of Berkeley's housing affordability strategy? No, it's it's more like a compromise, more like the frosting on the cake. Um, okay. It, depending on how we do the permitting, if ministerial approval is put in, which at the current rate, it's not going to be. They initially proposed it and then the neighbor backlash basically killed that idea. But I, I kind of have an idea that should it should still be in with a certain condition. Um, but if that's not in and it's still like two years to build any housing, like low-income housing developers in Berkeley, because we're always behind on our low-income housing goals, they have the ministerial approval and they just they just flaunt it. Like, hell yeah. We go right in. We're low-income builders. Um, these are basically su- publicly subsidized nonprofits. Right. We go in. We just 90 days. And they brag about it. Hell yeah, this thing is great. It keeps our costs down. We can build a lot more low-income housing. Because nowadays in the Bay Area, the average low-income home costs three quarters of a million dollars to build. Yep. One one low-income home, three quarters of a million dollars. So it doesn't. It's not. It, it's not even profitable to build low cost housing if this is how much it costs just to build a single home. And yes, construction costs are part of that, but much of it is because of the permitting times, and that's completely within the realm of the city. Um, well, okay. So you know, I think that we're sort of touching on this larger idea. And at the end, I'll just ask you what you think actually the solution would be if it's not. You know, if this is just sort of like a frosting on the cake type of thing. Like the, I, I think that generally people tend to think about NIMBYs as being people who uh, are rich and white and live in big houses and don't want, uh, you know, other people moving in, right? Whoever Mostly, but not always. Right. And Berkeley and in the East Bay, it doesn't seem like that's, you know, it's not just that, right? Like Carol Fife, for example, who is the 
monster housing activist who's now in the Oakland City Council. She's made some statements saying like, oh, Yimbies hate me, you know, and that's fine with me. Um, the There was a city council woman who was uh, who in in West Berkeley, where you grew up. Right. Um, I think that's where she was the representative of who was famously uh, NIMBY and anti anti YIMBY, right? And she got yeah, she lost, out. she got booted, right? Yeah. Um, and her contention, I, I t- and she lives in a fourplex miss- too, which is hilarious. <laughs> correct me if I'm if I her contention was essentially that this is just all neoliberal um, posturing, and that essentially it's just a way for developers to come in and build uh, luxury housing inside of Berkeley, luxury condos inside of Berkeley. No black person who is you know you know, supposed to be the the beneficiary of this type of thing as the way it's written is actually going to ever, you know, be able to live in any of those places and that everything is going to be built in probably West Berkeley and that'll lead to like greater displacement. And so that's a different argument than like, I don't want a fourplex next to my $2 million house. Um, I don't know how, like, how have you sort of navigated that? Because, you know, I, I, I think that their argument is popular amongst like the young left. Right. Um, that I think that 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 historically, uh, yes, but increasingly right. not so much. No, I agree with that. Right. So like, right. Um, I don't know. Like, is there like what, what like, do you see some scenario where it that is not the actual outcome of it, where like it won't be a bunch of houses bulldozed in West Berkeley to build like a, you know, like a apartment complex that houses like 15 wealthy tech workers who can't quite afford like the 1.7 million dollars for this 1600 square foot bungalow down the street yeah so firstly remember that like i in particular have been like pretty heavily involved in like writing state tenant protections right right. so uh one of the big yimby accomplishments was passing a bill called sb 330 which for the next for which for five years and it's it's almost certain to be extended uh bans the demolition of rent control housing without low-income equally housing replacement and right to return for the tenants so obviously any upzoning should obviously be paired with tenant protections. That's just common sense. And um, we, what the cities have historically done is they put all their high density zoning in like poor communities where there's like you know path of least resistance, and that in turn results in a lot of rapid changing of these neighborhoods. Uh, I tend to find the whole like this will build nothing but luxury housing thing is is, is sort of a byproduct of two problems. One, if the housing inventory is so backed up and construction costs are so high that the only thing that pencils is building this extremely expensive housing, ironically, by doing the sort of zoning reform we're calling for, it's far less likely to be put in low-income communities. Developers are going to want to try to maximize their profit margins as much as possible. And where are they going to do that? in the communities where housing prices are, by definition, the highest and thus most people want to live. There's actually a really interesting study out of UC Berkeley, which studied um, Fruitvale, which is a mostly Latino and black neighborhood in East Oakland, versus Menlo Park, which is you know home of Facebook in Silicon Valley. And they determined like, how much profit does a developer make in each neighborhood? What they discovered is that like you make four times the amount of profit um, in Silicon Valley than you do building in Fruitvale. I think that there's a popular theory on the sort of, well, we like to call them like left NIMBYs, but like it's basically people who are oppositional to housing development, but from the left. And they and and and, and they always say, well, developers are going to go for the low-income areas because that's where land is cheapest. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if the profit margin is considerably higher in a in an area where the acquisition costs are marginally higher, people are going to go for where the profit is highest. That's always the point. And we know this because there really isn't any housing development in East Oakland. Like 
Almost right. all the development in, in Oakland is focused along Broadway. And you can tell the developers are trying as much as possible to get as close to Temescal and Rockridge as possible along the, <laughs> along <laughs> along um Broadway. They're trying, right. they're trying, they can't get in, but they're like, I'm gonna build right on the edge and call it like lower, lower Rockridge. Right. Um, that's a, that's my favorite <laughs> thing that people do is when they invent neighborhood names with the neighborhood they uh they want to be associated. No, with. I know, it's, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> um but like, no, I mean developers want to build in rich places like the there's there's all kinds of developers right they're not all the same right. and, and and people tend to generalize them the big ultra capital developers like uh, avalon bay and boston properties and Leonard, all those big folks i mean they're trying to build in the rich ultra ritzy neighborhoods as far as close as they can get um or they or they'll do like some kind of corrupt land deal in san francisco whichever again that's enabled by city government though um And then you kind of have like the average people, the sort of small contractor that just wants to build like a multi-unit complex. Um, And those people are just like normal folks who will probably invest in their local communities. Um, One of the interesting things about Oakland was when they talked about the whole fourplex zoning proposal in Oakland, which is now going forward thanks to Councilmember Kaplan, uh, there was a lot of interest in East Oakland, deep East Oakland, where there actually is single family zoning which historically was put there to stop black people from moving in. It didn't work because they didn't do enough of it, in my opinion. But they only like they spot zoned a couple areas and were like, OK, <laughs> uh, that'll be good. And like, and that didn't that didn't pan out. Um, but like there was a lot of interesting talk from the um, East Oakland Collective and a lot of uh, black groups where they're like, OK, well, this is actually an interesting idea. How can we help? black and brown homeowners build multifamily housing to alleviate our housing crisis. Cause I'm from East Oakland. I'm black. I know what it's like out there. They actually have tons of multifamily housing in the single family zone areas. See out there, they don't care. Like no one cares what the zoning code says. Like, right. I, like I'm not going to like, if you don't snitch, like no one cares. But well, it's like uh, <laughs> East Palo Alto, for example, where like, you know, everyone like the, it's, uh, almost every garage is occupied by a family. Exactly. Right? Right? right. It's the very same thing. All the garages are occupied by families. So they're, prov- so you have a lot of black and brown homeowners that are collecting rental income um, and are, you know, extending their families or are renting out to people and therefore increasing housing supply. But there's a problem with this. The problem is, is that the, because the permitting process is so bad, is so long um, and is so expensive that these are all illegal additions. Right. Right. These are these are and many of them are are arguably not even habitable. I mean, they got the electrical cords going. I've seen it. They got the electrical cords going all over the place. They don't even have a real bathroom. Um, These are like a lot of these areas are quasi slum conditions. And so what we need to do, and this was talked about a lot by the East Oakland Collective, is we need to make sure that the process is when when the fourplex zoning happens, we need to have a like city finance process where we help black and brown homeowners turn their houses into multifamily housing rather than this illegal stuff that kind of is the worst of worst both worlds for everybody, which is these uninhabitable conditions. How can we help these homeowners, number one, get the financing to do it legally? And then two, like how can we help them like follow the rules and and, and not have this be a punitive measure? Because a lot of these homeowners, like they're one code of code inspection away from eviction, right? So we have to make sure that like they have the tools they need. But I like how they looked at it like mostly as an opportunity to expand low-income housing among the heavily uh, people of color owning class, as opposed to like some kind of blatant nimbyism. And I think that that's a good take. Of course, we didn't really have much of that in Berkeley, only because we don't have that many black residents left, sadly. And the truth is, is that, again, our black residents started leaving after the down zonings in the 70s. So what's so frustrating to me about when you mentioned earlier is the council member who... um, 
who's like who 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 lost re-election who was like oh all this is just an attempt to live in luxury condos like when they ban apartments back then it was about keeping slums out now they're banning apartments about keeping luxury housing out at some point you got to like conclude it's 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 just about keeping housing out no matter what the price range is and that most of the gentrification in Berkeley and in much of the bay area has not correlated with areas well they some of them have correlated with areas with displacement but for the most part, much of the gentrification has happened in areas with no development whatsoever. And there's actually a really good um, study by this, one of the most comprehensive ever done, called the UC Berkeley Urban Displacement Project, where they concluded that like building market rate housing, which is sort of the um, highest, newest brand is income housing, and building low-income housing both reduced gentrification over a period of 10 years. Low-income housing is twice as effective as market rate housing, but they both reduce gentrification. They both reduce the displacement over the next uh, 10 years. And so I can probably send you a study on that. Um, no, 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 that's fine. It's like, I, we, we can put it in the show notes. Um, I guess that, you know, I, is, is a lot of these, like, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying here. And I, you know, I have looked at it and it does seem like there's, there is no development in West Berkeley. The people who are buying these you know, the houses. It's all not... like rich white people buying houses. Right. They're just and... buying the houses that were yeah. there and they're buying them at ridiculous, like crazy, crazy prices, right? They're that nobody at, else can afford. At crazy prices. And, and the problem with the black folks is they either live in apartments or live in houses. The right. black folks in houses, as soon as they get into a financial emergency, they got to sell their house. And they almost certainly can't afford to live in their communities again. When they're the black folks, uh, they have, um, like this was my family. Usually you live in a house through your grandparents. And if your grandparents die and you got siblings, you're going to have to split. And you almost certainly cannot afford to live in your communities again. If you live in a apartment complex, rental increases mean you're out even with rent control. Uh, even with rent control, you might stay in your apartment for a longer period of time, but you'll have no mobility if you go off to college, if you go off and get another job and you want to come back to your community. Nope, can't do that. So everyone I know is moving to Vallejo. It's so weird. Like I went out to Vallejo and um, when my family moved out to Vallejo, it was so funny. The, the street we moved on, like a solid 25% of the black homeowners there were all from Berkeley. Wow. And it was really weird. They were, we were all identifying each other like, oh, yeah, I'm from uh, Spalding. Yeah, I'm from Dwight. But it's like, it was really weird. <laughs> it was fun, but it was also right. weird. Like, oh, no, we're all, we all I migrated. Mean, it's also like so indicative. Well, can, can you give the listeners some context? Because I know that you've posted this on Twitter. Um, and, you know, uh, I like, what is the, what, what has been the, the decrease in black population in Berkeley over the past like 40 years, 30 years. All right, let me pull this chart up because I actually, I'm working on this big thing where I'm going to like digitize all this information to a map. Um, So it's going to be pretty great. At Berkeley's peak, there was about 27,000 residents. And that was in 1970 at the time of the census. Right. Um, And it was gradually growing and and then of course in 1973 Berkeley decides to ban apartment buildings um, for the most part and housing production basically just drops to zero. Next decade, six thousand residents are lost between 1970 and 1980. Six thousand residents are black residents are lost, and then it just continues. Today we don't know what the number is, but the number of black residents in Berkeley is somewhere between. I think 7,000 to 8,000, maybe 9,000, but it's down from the 27,000 it used to be at its peak in 1970. So like a 70, 65%, 66% loss of, of residents. Um, yeah, a 20,000 a, a 20, uh, resident decrease um, over the last 50 years. And Berkeley built no housing uh, between 1970 and like 2000. 
maybe a little housing in the nineties, but that was it. So it's, it's interesting because like when we talk about gentrification, obviously building housing in a way is like a gentrification containment zone because all those rich people who are buying houses and, and leasing up apartments in the black neighborhoods, we want them to go to the luxury stuff downtown so they don't come here. Right. It's kind of a containment zone, but right. also it's, it's like, it's just common sense. If you have this massive population growth, if you have, and of course I posted these numbers recently, the huge jobs, housing imbalances that we have, um, where the Bay area is adding six new jobs for every one new home. And we live in an interconnected region. Like I know people don't like this in the Bay area and people don't seem to operate this way, but it's just reality, which is that, what San Mateo County decides to do affects Oakland, right? What San Francisco decides to do affects Oakland. And For so, sure. and so during the 2010s, like Santa Clara County added seven new jobs for every one new home. San Mateo County added 10 new jobs for every one new home. San Francisco adds eight new jobs for every one new home. And so you're seeing all these new office towers just rise up and where's the housing being built? Nowhere. And so what that means is they're depending on poorer communities in the East Bay to basically house all these workers and in turn price people out. And that's what gentrification actually is. And so I think one of the frustrating things about being an urbanist, and this has not been so much of a problem lately because I think urbanists have been just so successful at this, but kind of explaining to people like what gentrification actually looks like, because we're seeing lots of gentrification in Oakland right now. But if you ask people who may not be that informed, where do you think gentrification is happening? I think a lot of people will point to like, say, new condos on Broadway, when really most of the gentrification is happening in like the shallow parts of East Oakland. It's been happening in the, the black residents have been flushed out of North Oakland decades ago. Right. Um, West Oakland, it was basically this decade and the previous decade and nothing was getting built in Oakland until like 2016, 2017 anyways. So Oakland had a 10% increase in population in the last decade, despite increasing its housing, uh, despite increasing the number of homes in the city by just 3%, right? So 10% increase in people, 3% increase in housing. That means for every three people coming into the city, and Oakland is the fourth fastest growing city in the state of California. For every three people coming into the city, one of them probably lived in a new apartment complex, and the other two are probably either pricing people out of an apartment or buying a house in a former low-income community. That's the reality, right? I, I yeah, I, I I agree, and I, I you know it's it's interesting because I, I think this is like I want to get to the point where I feel like the sort of crux of of uh, the conversation is because I don't think that anything that you're saying should be controversial to anybody, right? Like it's like, we should understand these things for what they are. We should, um, the question is like whether or not the, what the solution should be. I think everyone agrees there should be more housing, but um, how it's done. And I, I want to read you a quote from Ananya Roy, who I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Um, who is a professor at UCLA. And she says, uh, she says, Yimbys often claim that all opposing them are reactionary NIMBYs opposed to low-income housing and diversity. This framing forecloses and ignores intentionally, we think, ideas from volunteer-run tenant-led housing movements who are often their critics. Now, I'm not saying that you are like sort of like the purest neoliberal Yimby here. So like, you know, I would not, you know, this is not about you. But we support more housing as long as it's affordable for the poor and the working class. We want social housing for all, whether owned by the state or by communities. We thus call ourselves FIMBYs, advocating public housing in my backyard. 
Yimbyism is a dangerous ideology that is funded by the powerful to serve the powerful. We as advocate for tenants, not for housing units, for the human rights of working poor and people of color must push back and provide alternatives to their narrow views. We hope this statement and our actions do so and we invite you to join us. Um, yeah, they're just what, mad. What do you think about the FIMBY movement? You know, because like I, I guess I've thought about that. I've talked to some friends as well. And I, you know, I think about it. I've, I've seen the statistics about the decrease of black population in Berkeley. And also, I'm you know, very aware of the, the almost impossible. It's impossible to buy a house, even if you're rich here, right? Like you're up against sometimes 20 different people and half of them are rich tech workers who just pay in cash. It does seem like maybe the only solution is public housing or, you know, something much more radical than, you know, eliminating single family zoning and that perhaps, you know, the timeline that 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 adding housing here in this city specifically, but in a lot of cities will not be fast enough to deal with like, you know, the forces that we're seeing. Like, how, how would you respond to that type of critique? Strongly agree. Well, I, well, I agree with what you just said, right. which is that eliminating single family zoning as sort of the crux of the housing crisis is obviously silly. That's why East Bay for everyone has worked on a paper called the California housing corporation and has currently in the state legislator proposed AB 387 through assembly member right. Alex Lee, which is a California state backed developer that builds all income public housing. We are also doing this at the local level in Berkeley. And if you're listening, um, we have a meeting very soon. Uh, go to East Bay for everyone's Twitter account and check it out. I will we're link actually, to it in the show notes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, uh, like Singaporean style public housing is a great idea. And we probably need it because the rate of housing production is just so low, we possibly can't keep pace with demand. My problem with people like the person you just read and all those others is they literally, first of all, aren't doing any of this. Second of all, sit around and tell us that like we just have to wait until public housing comes while our state is literally declining in population because more people are fleeing to like Phoenix and Houston and Salt Lake City and 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 and, and we lost our congressional seat to like Texas and uh, Arizona because our population is fleeing for middle income affordable communities. So you can sit here and tell people that the solution is like mass public housing and that we shouldn't do anything but that, but that empirically is not the only solution. You can build more market housing and that reduces housing costs. And the truth is, is that sitting there and not doing anything, um, while we can barely in the state legislature get the a ban repealed on public housing, it's called Article 34 of the California Constitution, which okay. bans public housing unless you have a vote, um, which many communities will not do. Like what you're effectively telling people is the status quo is good until I get my perfect solution and I'm currently got like what going on right now. Nothing. Right, right. There's, right, this, like, there's language in it that I found to be exactly like that. And I it's found just, that it's was sit around I, do nothing. I was, imagine if we did like, that. Imagine if we did that with healthcare. Like, right, look, right. I'm not saying I'm not saying Obamacare is great. I, I would much prefer a single payer healthcare system. I want mass social publicly funded housing like Singapore. It's my ideal dream world. But the reality is, what are we gonna do? Sit there and be like, until we get Canadian style single payer healthcare, everyone just gets no healthcare assistance whatsoever, no Medicaid, no Medicare, no nothing, no Obamacare. That's just completely pointless. That's just it's 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 people who spend more time fighting Yimbies that more or less are protecting rent controlled units statewide through laws that are pushing forward on social housing legislation and are also confronting the zoning problem and the supply problem than it is actually confronting the problem. If you really want to deal with these factors and these forces that are making public housing unfeasible, it's not Yimbies. 
Everyone knows that low-income housing builders, like affordable housing developers, they all know this. They love Yimbies. Yimbies are their best friends because low-income housing builders. And I used to work one. So f- funny thing about half this stuff is I'm always talking to people who like never built a low-income unit in their life, right? <laughs> I used to actually work for low-income housing builders. I used to work for resources for community development. I know what it's like to actually build subsidized housing, and these people will tell you, yeah, zoning is a huge problem. When I used to work for a low-income housing builder, when there was areas that were single-family zone, we just gave up. We didn't even try. It was my job. I would, my job was to do like acquisition and site acquisitions and, and, right. and stuff. And so I would go scout around and, and uh, I would get a whole, uh, a list of potential sites, the developer, the nonprofit could buy. And whenever I told them, okay, here's the zoning code. They said, Nope, we're not going to do it. Cause we, it, it, we're not going to waste our time for years trying to get these like zoning variances in like this community. So like, I'm not, I'm not against like Tenant activism is great and all, but like the like weird like tenant activist realm in America that is like so obsessed. And I say America because I don't really see this in other countries. Like this is so strange to me. Like you go out to like Europe where like social housing is popular by like the social democrats in Vienna. They're like all yimbies. I don't like <laughs> or like Stockholm, for example. I don't know why like here it's like a fanatical like if it's not immediately public housing, then suburban sprawl suburbs are good and fine. I don't get what the point of that is, but whatever it is. And to be clear, not all tenant, tenant activists are like this. Actually, most tenant activists I know are great folks. I work with them all the time. They call me out for assistance and I'm always happy to give it to them. But these like culture warriors that are more obsessed about arguing with Yimbies on Twitter, I... I, I I don't know, man. At the end of the day, if I'm constantly on the same side as some of the most exclusionary communities when it comes to state land use policy, I might be questioning, like, how does this actually help? (laughs) That's fair. I mean, I think their argument, which I I actually, you know, I'll just say, like, I I find this to be an annoying argument is that, like, this is these are all distractions, right? Like everything that we're doing is like a distract. They almost make a Foucauldian argument, right? That, like, the more you... They're like Ingalls. I hate saying that. Right. The more you make the state seem like... uh, that it's doing things when nothing actually is changing, then that gets us further away from the goal of public housing. But I don't know. I always find those arguments like, to be frustrating it, because it's like, like real well, talk. All right, like, what do you want to do? Like, think right. about it. What? How in the world does like upzoning? How does allowing multifamily housing inhibit social housing in any way? It doesn't. That's what low income builders don't think so. Nobody thinks so. But these people who are like culture warriors on Twitter. You know what the truth is? The truth is that these are people with very left wing politics. And by the way, there's lots of left-wing urbanists who, again, are not in this category because every time I talk about these people, they get real mad and they're like, I'm not one of these people. I totally agree that we long-term need like social housing and public housing, but like we should have zoning ordinances. We should have regulations. Like that's all great. And there's actual real left critiques of Yimbyism that I think are pretty decent. And one of them is it's silly to expect with all these problems we're facing in the United States that we can just like do market housing and that's it. And Yimbys don't even really believe this by and large. But if you want to make an adv- if you want to advocate for like a stronger public sector intervention in housing production, absolutely, and you're totally right to critique that. I think um, I think Yimbies rely just a little bit too much on the idea that like zoning is the end all be all in terms of like reduced housing production. If you want right. to make the and this is what's so frustrating to me too, because especially with the LA tenant people, like they're always like, well, here's how it, here's Red Vienna, here's how they do it in Vienna. And and we got this attack too in like Jacobin and all these other places. What's that? What's that socialist name in New York City? De Boer or whatever. Um, he actually wrote a really good argument where he basically said that like Yimbies were right. We're just really annoying. Which I will admit 
is a flaw. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But like, it was a really good. Um, he he wrote it in his like, what is it called, Substack, Substack or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it was yeah, this, this socialist that, right. in New York City who's like, yeah, look, on the facts, Yimbys are right, and we do need urbanization. We probably need upzoning, and this is all really good ideas. Um, I just wish Yimbys would stop being so confrontational. And I will be honest that the confrontational attitude of Yimbys has hurt the movement a lot. To be honest with you, though, it's a little ridiculous coming from like people who like coming from like Twitter where like that's where like Bernie bros are like like everyone's toxic on Twitter. You how do you tone police on Twitter? I don't know. Um, but there is a huge criticism of the Yimby movement that I think sometimes is pretty fair, which is that Yimbys will sometimes fail to explain their policies and will instead just start trying to attack people and paint them as Nimbys, which I think is very frustrating and is something I don't like to do. I try to encourage Yimbys to be civil and talk to people and realize like, hey, here's the numbers, here's the stats, here's the figures. Don't like call people Nimbys and try to talk to people on a sort of empathetic <laughs> level. Like I, I, no, I think it's a real, if, if that's what, if that's what I, I do think it, it's an actual problem because yeah. I, you know, like I, I do find, you know, um, I do find some Yimbys, not you obviously, but I do find some of them to be very annoying. You yeah. Know, like they're, just, they're like yeah. mobbing people, like some person, right. the average person out there doesn't know jack shit about housing policy. Right. Like the average right. person doesn't know what their city's zoning code looks like. So or they'll do like the thing where it's like, do you understand what supply and demand is? And you're just like, dude, come on. Yeah. You know, why do you have to be like this? Yeah, don't do not do that, right? Like <laughs> you can you can like talk to people normally and I think it would be better for the Yimby movement, but it's it's kind of whatever. I don't know. There's lots of Yimbys out there though. I, I feel like the neo-lib Yimbys do this a lot more than the lefty leftist Yimbys do, but. Okay, so here's my last question to you. And it's, you know, it's one that I think is, you know, around all of this, like, what what do you think the pathway is? Because you you said you support Singaporean, you know, style housing. And I think that you and I would both agree that the only way to sort of have the Berkeley that you and I want to live in, you know, the one that actually will where things that I think Berkeley is great about, like, for example, bus schools, right? Like at some level, if this keeps happening, like the bus schools aren't going to do anything, right? It's just going to be shuffling like rich kids around to different schools and yeah they should probably just ban it at this point i don't know what it's around for (laughs) (laughs) it's not like it's not like kamala harris going to thousand oaks you know it's like basically kamala harris's uh neighborhood might be more wealthy in the next few years than like uh than than thousand oaks right yeah kamala harris's parents are living out in vallejo commuting in that's what they're doing right right um but like what's the how do you get from you know how do you get to that from where we are right now, right? Where we've taken this big, some, this big step to have this resolution. It's gotten all this press. Like, how, how do you get there? And cause that's something I don't know. You know, that's why I'm always so interested in like what you have to say on social media or whatever in our own conversations. It's like, how, how do we get to there from here or can we um, get there for here? Because I think we both agree that like, basically, unless that happens, like we're going to have just a lot of compromises that aren't going to radically change much in this city. We can't, we got to stop thinking locally and we're going to have to start thinking more regionally. So what okay. can Berkeley do? Um, honestly, not much. I mean, if, if, if San Mateo County and San Francisco continues to erect office towers, um, then we're all just trying our best to like fill the water, right? Let's get the water out. Like, come on, let's, let's try to make the housing affordable. We have to start thinking regionally. And that generally does mean more state legislation around land use. We need to, if we're going to like reach our climate target goals, if we're going to really transition um, to like, to, to, to carbon efficient cities where we're not actually increasing the global temperature. These are things that we're going to have to do. 
we're going to have to mandate that most housing be near public transit. We're going to have to mandate that it does not have parking. We're going to have to mandate that like suburban sprawl needs to come to an end. If that's a criticism of Yimby's, I would also make not enough anti-sprawl action, right? East Bay for everyone's doing it right now. We're opposing sprawl in Contra Costa County. Oppose sprawl. We should be NIMBYs about sprawl. Well, I guess we're not really NIMBYs because we live in urban areas, but like, right. we're, no, we're, we're actually, we're, we're good NIMBYs. That's what we are. We want housing in our backyard. We do not want it out in, in, in sprawl lands. We need to dramatically rethink the concept of American homeownership culture, which I think is radically sort of undergoing its final stage in terms of relevancy. You see with like BlackRock and Blackstone, all these speculators buying up single family homes. And the problem is, is that the American way of living is fundamentally flawed when it comes to home ownership. We have a system where people are encouraged to get infinite appreciation through their house. Their house is a class jumper. You're taught as a young person, when you become a homeowner, that's how you get into the middle class. What that says is it necessitates keeping your housing as unaffordable as possible once you get in. And that's kind of the problem we have now where we have so few housing. It's now a nationwide problem while the population grows, while we have immigration coming into this country, and we're relying on it to build wealth largely because our wages have been stagnant for the last, what, 40 years now, 50 years almost. And people are compensating that with real estate. And that's a, that's a problem that, that, that American way of living is I think really fatally flawed for affordability. It's always going to be at odds. We constantly play this game of like, it's either displacement or it's exclusion. It's never like, Hey, here's a decent, affordable city. You just move into. It's always like in the process of dealing, not displacement. It's always in the process of being either, um, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, it's, it's, it's always, it's always a, it's always American cities are stuck in the binary of, of, um, I don't, what's the word I'm looking for? Not disrepair, neglect, neglect. Right. Like it's, it's, um, it's, it's always, we're always in the positions of it's either white flight or it's gentrification. Right. right. Um, it's, it's, it's either disrepair and ghettos or it's exclusionary suburbs. It's never just like an affordable city that can grow and expand and not displace people. So right now we have a nationwide housing shortage. It's extremely bad in California. When we had something like this in World War II, because we had mass urbanization and migration to sort of deal with the war effort, we imposed nationwide rent control so that landlords could not increase prices and basically uh, displace workers who needed to be near factories and actually work. We're going to need a lot more rent control right now because it's 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 damaging not only to our economy but also to the social fabric of our communities that people can just be priced out like this a lot of renters didn't even vote for this housing shortage so the fact that people are getting displaced we need rent control that's what when we have because neoliberals always say okay well rent control is bad because here's a stanford study saying that it decreased the amount of housing rent control is not the answer it is a mitigator in the meanwhile so that we can build lots of housing while not displacing people. And so we need to install rent control. Then we need to focus on mass housing production programs. We need to do urban infill. We need something like Senate Bill 50, where we need to dramatically upzone the number of homes around public transit and focus all of our housing there, rather than suburban sprawl like we've currently been doing for the last 40 years. 
we need to get the public sector involved in housing. Sadly, it's really hard to repeal Proposition 13. So, and we probably shouldn't repeal it for homeowners. This is what Yimbies hate me for, but I'm going to be honest with you. Prop 13 shouldn't be repealed for homeowners because a lot of these homeowners live in houses that now cost like, like some, some black homeowner lives in a house that now costs a million dollars when they probably it was like $400,000 in 2010 in West Oakland, right? right? If you get rid of Prop 13 benefits for that person, you're displacing their whole family. That's going to damage our economy and that damages, and that's just socially immoral. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. But repealing Proposition 13 for like businesses and commercial interests, that's great. Mortgage interest deduction needs to go. Vacation homes and vacancy taxes, all that hardcore, go hard. We need the we need the public sector involved in housing development. And that actually benefits both the private sector as well, because the more public housing we have constructed at all income levels, we need to go like Singapore and Vienna In Vienna. It's what 50% of the housing is um, any new development is 50% affordable and 50% market rate. And so that's actually cool. They can do that here and they can do that in Vienna because they, they basically, the developer doesn't take the land prices. The Viennese government owns a lot of the land. We need to city governments need to focus a lot more on buying land and let the state government build a housing corporation that can build tons of low income and high income uh, public housing, much like Singapore. It needs to be high density to generate revenue for the public sector. This is actually a great way we can start to generate revenue for the public sector rather than rely on property taxes, which thanks to Prop 13 is already so low and our schools are failing, everything's failing. So we need a robust public and private housing construction plan like like uh, like like almost like 1950s baby boom era, like GIs coming home. Oh crap, we need more housing, right. but not not suburban subsidized segregated housing like is traditional. We need integrated urban housing, um, both public and private. I do have a very controversial lefty take, which um, may scare some people, but I don't think it's all that radical. I really don't think any land in the United States should be publicly privately owned. I think it should all be publicly owned land. Um, I think that the government should be much more in the business of um, land leasing as opposed to selling land. I don't think any local city government should be selling land. Um, governments need to be purchasing land and buying housing. I think that like, I would love to see Berkeley, for example, focus the social housing program. Cause right now we're trying to like spend all of our dollars to build these like gigantic, like three quarters of a million dollar per unit subsidized housing. It's going right. to take 17 years to build like, like a thousand homes. And by the time that happens, like 40,000 black people will be gone. So like, that's mm-hmm. not really helpful. Um, we need to focus more on the city government acquiring existing properties and utilizing them efficiently. We need to focus um, and then and then again, have the state developers focus on building subsidized housing. And I think that like that's really it. It's, it's a whole host of things, but that's really my strong position, which is we need a lot more tenant protections. We need a lot more private development and we need a lot more public sector development. And that will actually get more construction workers going because the problem, the problem in California is we deal with this whole like silical cycle problem where like as soon as a recession happens and housing construction tanks, half the labor force drops out. And then we right. can't build enough housing the next time a, a glut, a, a, next time a shortage comes, which is exactly what happened in 2010. This is part of the problem. So, but but fundamentally, and if you understand this about social housing in other countries, because I've extensively studied social housing um, in Singapore and Vienna, I've studied it in the Netherlands before. I I I in East Bay for everyone. Yimbies wrote the public housing white paper that's currently in the um, state uh, government right now. This is fundamentally a supply issue. Like, I'm sorry that this hurts people's feelings and it sounds neoliberal and whatever. It just is. 
right? In Vienna, the whole point of having the public sector be involved in the housing construction system is not because they think that um, is, is not because they think that like there's something intrinsically evil about development. It's that they understand that it's a supply problem and they don't actually have confidence that the private sector can build as much housing needed as the public sector can. And so, you know, I think there was a really great quote by one of my EMB colleagues. It's um, the socialism we need is that like capitalism has failed to build enough housing. The socialism we have is capitalism has built too much housing, right? Like right. this is this is what we really need to do. So I'm all for these like social programs and I'm all for rent control. I'm all for tenant protections, but we need upzoning. We need to get homeowners adding extra homes to their properties. We need to get more private development. We need to make sure our public lands have all income social housing on it. We need to really make sure that we can create a sustainable social housing system and a private housing system that is flexible to the population growth and the urbanization and the immigration that is occurring in our cities. You can't just add millions of people to these regions and not expect housing costs to inflate. Of course they will. So do you, do you think that like, uh, I guess let's end with this. It's just like, I feel like all the things that you are talking about, I don't think that many people on the left for example, who are like left NIMBYs would oppose, right? Like they're all things that they want. Maybe, I don't know. Like, do you think they're po- like, th- that just seems are like the popular? hard part. Yeah, but are they popular like the hard part. people? Right, like, because you can they're get, I, you can get people up, you know, you can get See, that's people what I mean, right? Berkeley like, Hills to just say, okay, cool. Like, let's get rid of this racist zoning law, right? But at the point where it's just like, okay, like, let's do the next step. I feel like there's going to be so much more resistance. Of and course. I'm wondering how, this how is- do you, how do you plan for that? And this is why this stuff is so annoying. These like pointless little um, fights that like left NIMBYs like to fight YIMBYs on. It's a huge waste of our time. Like at the end of the day, the real pitch isn't to be made to like a couple people on Twitter who are obsessed about culture wars and whatnot. The real pitch is to be made to like average Californians and telling Californians that they can no longer use their home as a primary tool of investment is obviously a pretty difficult thing to say. Right. But I think that like we need to focus more on like wages as the as the fundamental problem. And so much of our costs, so much of our unaffordable, so much of the fact that Californians are so many, so many Californians are in poverty. Much of that is because of housing costs fundamentally. And my appeal to normal people, because I don't like, I would love to do all the things I just mentioned. That's my utopia fantasy world, and I'm trying to make it happen. Probably won't happen. I don't know. Um, it's really frustrating to have like the nonprofits try to f with the social housing bill to make it just another like public housing experiment that doesn't work. Um, but like the real the reality is, judging by how hard it is to repeal Article Thirty Four of the California Constitution, judging by how hard it was to build low income housing in many communities, I would get called down to like Fremont, California, and seeing all the like homeowners there like viciously fight against um, homeless shelters and all that stuff. It's going to be hard. And if you want people to accept public housing and social housing and all that stuff that the, the, the sort of lefty critics you mentioned talk about, you're going to have to create a culture in this country where people accept more neighbors and people accept more housing. And that's no longer a boogeyman scary thing that it currently is. And that's why the YIMBY movement is so important. And I think people who actually are in the interest of low-income housing, who build low-income housing for a living, those people understand that. If you want people to actually give a shit about adding more housing and, and protecting people, you can't have people as scared of two families living on a lot, right? right. Like we got it. We got to get past that step first before we start talking about like <laughs> Singaporean public housing, Viennese right. co-ops. Right. We can't do it, right? And the financing is a huge problem too. We have a, a, a co-housing group um, here in Berkeley trying to build 
you know, non-market uh, housing and they can't do it because the fees and the construction requirements are too right. hard. So like, if you're not seriously engaged in this kind of stuff, it, it, I used to argue with these people a lot, but I no longer do. Cause it's just a waste of my time. If you're not seriously engaged in this stuff, there's no point. We're going to be here 70 years from now. It's going to be even worse. How's it going to be $5 million on average? We're going to be talking about the good old days when it was only just 1.4 million. And I really don't want that to happen, but that seems our trajectory or we just won't be living in California period. Right. And, and, yeah. and you know, I just, that's, that's just my take the average pitch. And so for most of the listeners out there who I'm pretty sure are not like left NIMBYs or anything, um, yeah, we might have some, but yeah, I mean, well, I, I think, I, I think the most, I think the vast majority of people who listen to the podcast are, you know, would identify on the left, but are curious about this. You know, at least that's what I would hope. I think the pitch is you need to like, if you want to really make a change in your community, saying yes to housing is the way you do it. It's all interconnected The saying yes to housing, but making exceptions, it just doesn't work. Now, I do agree that we do need to make sure that like luxury developers aren't like displacing people or evicting people. Again, Yimby's wrote the law that prohibited that from happening. Mountain View was losing hundreds of rent controlled units a year. Yimby's put a complete stop to that. So I think that this is really important, but it's an all around approach. If you look at some of the most affordable cities, Tokyo, for example, they're building lots of housing. You it's wild to me that people walk around like really beautiful cities like San Francisco, but looking at housing that was built a hundred years ago for a population that size and somehow thinking that it's logical that it would still be affordable today with a considerably larger population. It just doesn't make much sense. Right. So I think that like it, it really starts at home, right? I organize in my community cause this is where I'm from. And I think we just need to say yes to housing. Housing shouldn't be something with an asterisk that we say yes to. It's just so goofy to me. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for, coming on the show i mean i don't i, I hope this is going to be very educational and if uh you might get a few people who listen to this yelling at you on twitter if so uh but i think that most people are gonna i don't know i i i, I feel similar to you that um like there's this is not a time for like purity testing ideas right like it's an emergency i mean i guess the thing really is too like coming from berkeley coming from berkeley they've been doing that forever like the whole the whole thing in the seventies was oh they're gonna do like oh we're gonna get rid of all this new apartment complex we're gonna do public housing everything's gonna be great they didn't do crap right they, right, here, they, right, they said they, right. they they downzoned everything the housing shortage got really bad and no public like a couple units of public housing were built they're like tiny little weird shacks everywhere and then nothing happened so I'm not yeah. I'm not again I'm not against it but like if you really think that the if if you're like a tenant organizer or something and again most of them are great especially in the suburbs they're great right. like awesome. Um, and the city folks are great too, but like, if you're someone out there who like spends all your time fighting with Yimbies because Yimbies like to say yes to all housing at all income levels, man, come on. That's just, that's, that's a goofball behavior to me. That's not your enemy and we're not going to be your enemy, but yeah, whatever. Uh, we don't, let's not worry. We don't have to worry about Twitter. We try not to do it on the show. Like we almost, we have a role, so let's, uh, we don't have to get involved with that, but, um, yeah, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, we do this once a week, usually. Sometimes we do it twice a week. Um, you can, uh, let's see, I have to read all these things. You can support the show on patreon.com slash ttsgpod. You can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Or you can subscribe to our Substack newsletter where you get all the uh, episodes, and that's at uh, goodbye.substack.com. Daryl, thanks for coming on. This is uh, long overdue, and I'm excited to put this out. Say come